This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We have a special guest on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Mike Norman, our entertainment editor, is standing in for Laura Johnston, who's taking some time off. I'm Chris Quinn, here also with Jane Cahoon and Chris Warnowski, our colleagues. Welcome all. Welcome, Mike. Hey, good to be here. Mike has lots to talk about regarding stories he edited yesterday. It's kind of perfect that he's standing in. Let's begin. Why is Secretary of State Frank LaRose so focused on making it harder for Ohioans to vote in the presidential election? Jan Kuhn, earlier this week or last week, I can't remember when it was, he announced he was going to purge voter lists after November. And I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt that he's trying to get people to vote. And if he threatens to remove them from the voter rolls, if they don't vote, then maybe they'd vote. But then he did something this week that kind of changes my whole perspective. <laughs> this guy is just trying to reduce the vote. What did he do? So he wouldn't say that, first of all. But I think this could be one of the most controversial things he's he's ever done as Secretary of State. So first of all, I should note that this coronavirus relief bill that lawmakers passed in March required drop boxes, a drop box at each county board of elections for the primary, which you probably remember was pretty much an all-male election. But that requirement expired after the primary was over. So LaRose, who's a Republican, said Wednesday that that he was going to continue to allow those drop boxes because everybody has one now, every county board of elections. So I think he would feel that he's probably already out on a legal limb, just saying those would be allowed. But Democrats and voter rights groups have been asking for additional drop boxes for the November presidential election because we're still in the pandemic. And you know they're expecting like double the percentage of absentee voters for this election because people don't want to go out in person and, and vote and jeopardize their health. So People were suggesting that they have these drop boxes at places like libraries so that, you know, people wouldn't necessarily have to come downtown. I should also mention that, you know, people aren't really trusting the U.S. mail very much now because of moves that the Trump administration has made that have delayed the mail. So this is a way for people to, you know, securely drop it into a drop box and, you know, try to make sure they're their vote would count. But LaRose said, uh, apparently he asked the Attorney General Dave Yost for a legal opinion on this as to whether they could allow extra ones. But before uh, Yost even delivered a ruling or an opinion to him, he just said, you know, it's too 
too late in the game to change this. And we, you know, we can't upend the whole election. You know, Pennsylvania got sued by the Trump administration for, for having these things. I don't want to subject the boards of elections to wasteful litigation. And, um, so, so, so that's his decision, but there was immediate and really strong pushback from Democrats and voter rights people who said, you know, He's just he by asking for that opinion, he's just trying to run out the clock. You know, he's trying to blame it on the legislature by saying that he needs a specific law authorizing this and it's a legal gray area. Uh, All right. So So, it's it's a big let's play conspiracy theory. Let's play conspiracy theory. You got a president that is doing everything he can to undermine people's confidence in the mail. He did it again yesterday. Um, he, He mean, basically saying, I don't think the mail can handle mail-in ballots and and he's been asked for more money he won't provide it so a bunch of americans are worried that if i get an absentee ballot and mail it i won't be counted so then their other choice is to go in person which scares them because they don't want to get coronavirus or drop it off now it's much harder to drop it off because you have to go to the single drop-off point which you could always do i mean you're talking about having a drop box but I mean, I can always deliver my ballot to the Board of Elections, which is pretty much where the drop box is. So so having multiple drop boxes would have given people confidence their ballot was being counted. Now it's much harder to do. So so I think my argument that he's making it harder to vote is pretty strong. Why wouldn't you have drop boxes? We got mailboxes, Federal Express boxes. I mean, every delivery company in the in the country has boxes all over Cleveland. It's a pretty safe way to do things. And he's refusing to let it happen while saying, I think it'll be fine to vote in person. Well, who knows? I mean, there's a big fear. We're not going to have enough poll workers and that we're going to have massively long lines. The secretary of state is supposed to make voting easier with all of the challenges coming. I, I just I think this is a step to to gum up the system, to make voters less likely to get the mail in ballot more likely to go in person and then encounter all the difficulties that we could see on election day. Chris Ranowski, you believe in conspiracy theories. <laughs> no, you think I'm wrong? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I fully don't believe in conspiracy theories. What's wrong with you? So there's, no, and let me get this. There's no, apparently no legislative will to address this problem at all either. Oh, please, I'm please. Do you, you think the legislature, <laughs> which is even, you know, LaRose trying to get like online absentee ballot applications, they wouldn't even, do that. I mean, he has tried to to make some things easier for voters, but this legislature is not about that at all. Well, I think, you know, here we are in an election. I mean, this is, I mean, we may have to vote in person and we may have to put our health at risk to do it. You know, I mean, this may be, you know, I'm not just well, but not to sound lofty and overly dramatic, I, you know, maybe this is the big sacrifice that our generations have to make, that we have to go and, you know, ensure that our democracy works and that, you know, it, I mean, it, that it works to the degree that we still have an electoral college and all that BS. <laughs> so, but, so we have to risk death yeah. because there's not a drop box. I mean, right. But, but hey, like, hey, hey, look, man, if, if, if you know, if, if the people who make the political decisions in this state can sleep at night knowing that what they're what they're doing to the general public good on them. I, I wish I could get a dose of whatever helps them sleep. But you know what's interesting is that uh, you know LaRose mentioned the the suit that the Trump administration had filed against Pennsylvania. Well, I mean, don't you think 
the voter rights groups are going to sue over this. So I don't know which fight he'd rather have, but I think there's going to probably be litigation on this no matter what, don't you? Yeah, but the problem is you don't have an absolute right to a drop box. And I mean, I, I mean that, that is up to the state and I don't think they would have success in the courts. I, I well, could be wrong. There's nothing in the state law that, that prohibits this. So therefore, no, but, it should be allowed. It it should be allowed, but but he's the secretary of state. He sets the election rules. He wants uniform rules in every county, and he's saying you can't do it. I can't imagine that that the Ohio Supreme Court, which is where this would end up, would rule differently. Well, I guess well, it, I guess it could be federal court. court. Yeah, yeah that's Can I, true. And, and it's one thing worth noting here is that it's the president who has made this state in play. So right. so really, what what's going on here is is that. There's a lot of down ballot candidates who are suddenly vulnerable as a result of this president. So, you know, there's there's some of that going on. There, there's some saving of their own hides that is happening in Ohio. And there's and, two Supreme Court seats that are right. in play that everybody would have thought the, the incumbent Republicans would easily win. But that is by no means a certainty right now. Mike Norman here. Do you think that the, some of these actions might actually energize people in ways they had not previously been energized to both get out the vote and and to actually vote? Like if they see the fact that there's these crass attacks upon their democratic right to uh, to vote, that the people are making it harder, does the other side uh, risk, you know, really energizing people to do what they might not normally do, which is it's a good point, Mike. I'm I'm more determined than I've ever been <laughs> to make sure my vote gets counted. And I think I'm going to do what Chris is talking about. I'll show up at the polls, wear my mask and wait in line. Well, early vote too. Me. you know, go down again. I, I say this a couple of times on this podcast, but I, Every election that I voted on in since I've moved to Cuyahoga County, I have gone down to the Board of Elections office because it's close to our old office. And I vote I vote there and I vote early because a lot of times it's not busy and it's actually a, a very, very delightful experience. Like I like going in there. Everybody's eager to be involved in the electoral process and and I enjoy it. So if you can can get out and vote early, vote early and okay. you know get it out of the way. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Were any of the 10 people just indicted in Cleveland's May 30th riot from outside the region? Chris <laughs> Ranowski, early on, the law enforcement came out and said, these were outsiders that instigated this violence. This wasn't Clevelanders. This was outsiders. But what are the locations? What are the home addresses of the people that have been arrested and charged so far? See, and you you think that I like conspiracy theories. The great <laughs> outsider agitator conspiracy theory rides again in Cleveland. No. Um, yeah. So they the prosecutor's office of Cuyahoga County announced that they had arrested uh, 10 people uh, yesterday in relation to some uh, property damage and, and some of the looting portion of what happened during the May 30th George Floyd demonstrations in downtown Cleveland. Six of the 10 people who are charged are residents of Cleveland. The others are from Bedford Heights, Wycliffe, Strongsville, and Elyria. Tropical Elyria, way out of our <laughs> area, right? Um, so, so yeah, you know, this is, th these include uh, some felony level charges, uh, uh, some aggravated burglary things, some, it's a lot of vandalism, uh, so, you know, they're arresting people and then they, they put out a, a whole bunch of photos, which, you know, you can probably find on their website, too, about 
of, of other people that they're looking to question and people they want to arrest. So they're still cranking on this, but it's also worth noting that they have opened, uh, there are some probes into some of the deputies and the police activity that happened during this too. And uh, we did finally get some information about a, a, a police officer who is accused of pepper spraying people and, and hitting people with the baton. So we have a couple of stories about this on the website. If people want to check it out. I I've been catching some flack from some people cause we've been pretty vocal about our demand really for the County council and the city council to do their duty and hold hearings to see how police behave during this. So if they went over the rails, as many witnesses say they did, we can correct it so it doesn't happen again in the future. They refuse to do it. And people are interpreting that. Some people are interpreting that that we're, we're giving an excuse to the people who rioted. And so I got a couple of notes yesterday from people saying, did you see that video? These guys were destroying property. Okay. Yes. The people who destroyed property, they should be charged. They should be, they, they right. should go to court. I mean, we've never made any case against that. Anybody that destroyed property that can be charged and, and brought to justice should be. And that's what they did yesterday. It's a good thing, but that does not change the fact that many witnesses say this was a peaceful protest until the police unloaded munitions, and we still need a reckoning for that. Yeah, I think what most people want out of these situations is an equal amount of effort put into investigating officer behavior as they do property crime, you know, because, you know, the, the notion is that you can fix a building, but a guy who gets shot in the face and loses his eye to a beanbag round, that's permanent. And and really, you know, I mean, he he is is a victim of the government. You know, this is our government and we need to we need to make sure that we hold them accountable, too. And we can't always be focused on the fact that, you know, there are, what, 10, 15 people charged with some property crime and some vandalism and and people who went there to to start trouble when there were thousands of people there who were doing nothing but, you know, demonstrating their right, right. to assemble and speak and. And, exactly. and, and really to speak out against, you know, their government, which is a, a codified right in our Constitution. It's right there at the first one. So, OK, <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. Why did United Airlines announced its biggest expansion at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport since it dismantled its hub here? all in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic that has many people afraid to fly. Mike Norman, this was a surprise. United has cut back and cut back and cut back. And and really, his, it seems like it's a much less significant presence in Cleveland. And then out of the blue, they announce a bunch of extra flights. What's going on? Well, it has to do with the coronavirus, to be honest. Uh, you know, you, you're looking at the Transportation Security Administration reporting that air traffic is a quarter of what it was a year ago. So like they've only checked 500,000 passengers in the past few months. Cleveland Airport Director Robert Kennedy recently told members of the city council that he expected air traffic at the airport to drop to 4.1 million travelers in 2020, which is down from 10 million a year ago. And what that means, what Susan Glazer, our travel writer, found out is is one of the oldest pl- uh, pages in the airline playbook is when you don't know what to, else to do, fly to Florida because you can always fill a flight. And apparently you can still fill a flight to Florida in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic in which Florida is one of the hot spots of, uh, 
of the virus and which Ohio recommends you quarantine from for 14 days if you return from the uh, state. So all these flights that were added are to Florida? All of them. Yes. Wow. This is uh, Chris Warnowski. I have one question. Why? Like, why are people flying to Florida? Like, what is going on? That state is out of control with the virus. Because this isn't just Orlando, right, Mike? This is all over Florida. Right. In fact, the uh, Cleveland editions were part of a bigger United announcement Wednesday that we're all focused on Florida. The carrier is also uh, announcing new flights to the same Florida destinations from uh, Boston, New York, LaGuardia, Columbus, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh. All right. So to Chris's question, I mean, it's a great question. Why? Why would anybody be going to Fort Lauderdale or Tampa? I mean, I get people want to take their kids to Disney World and, and do the whole thing, but but it just it seems like if I had to pick a place to go away to right now, Florida would be damn near on the last destination on my list. You got me. I know from talking anecdotally with neighbors of mine who have actually gone there. I'm like, why are you going to Florida? Number one, why are you going in summer when you can get the same the same weather here uh, sands the beaches? I mean, uh, and it's really the the fares are so cheap, so cheap that it this is almost uh, impossible to resist for some people. Uh, plus, you have Disney, which opened back up, and the beaches. So uh, I don't know. You got I me. I, I'm not going. I did soon. notice they doubled the flights up right before Christmas. So they must be counting on people who refuse to accept a reduced Christmas festivity season because of the coronavirus that they're going to go to Florida come hell or high water. Is is United are are they still doing uh are they selling center seats like are they still separating people or or have they just given up on that as well do we know that Oh I don't know that for sure I know that there was a lot of pushback from consumers in flights about um the airlines that were not allowing you to separate by the center seats so the ones that were selling center seats were getting some bad publicity on social media and some of them I think Delta backed off and began leaving the center seat open. But uh, <laughs> it all goes back to why is anybody flying? <laughs> well, that's a quarant- That's one of the things that one of the states you have to quarantine when you come right. back from, right? Correct. Well, yeah, recommended in Ohio. You know. Yeah, it's recommended. I wonder how many people are doing it. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many new coronavirus cases did we see on Wednesday? And what has the trend been of late? Jane Cahoon, we haven't talked about this in about a week or two. And it seems like we've kind of hit a plateau. What's going on with the numbers in Ohio? Right. We've been talking about how things have kind of leveled off with with about a thousand or fewer cases, new cases a day in Ohio. But then on Wednesday, we got over 1,400 cases. So uh, who knows if that's like a blip or or something to worry about. The th- That number is, is above the 21-day rolling average of, of 1,215 and, and also more than we got on the previous Wednesday, which was about, you know, 1,200. And then we had 26 new deaths, which is also above the 21-day average of 24, not, not a lot above that. And then just to give you kind of the grim totals, since this outbreak first hit Ohio, a total of 104,248 people have, have had the virus. Um, but, 
about 82,000 are believed to, to have recovered. Now, what does this all mean? Well, as I said, it's just one day, so we're, so we're not sure. The, the seven day average positivity rate in Ohio, which is, um, I think was updated as of Sunday is 5.1%. So that's still, you know, relatively, I don't want to say good, but you know, not, not horrible. It's the target. It's what they were hoping to get to. It'll be interesting to see if any counties come off of the red zone when that map is released later today. Thursday's the day for that, right? Yes, indeed. Okay, we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What routes is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority aiming to increase service on, and how often will people see the buses arrive? Chris Ranowski, RTA, has been struck hard by the coronavirus ridership is way down. They were hurting before the coronavirus even came. So they're scrambling and they're making some adjustments. They're going to cut service in some places that they're not revealing just yet. Right. But yesterday was the good news day. What What do we hear? Yeah. So the good news is their pr- proposed redesign would increase service to every 15 minutes on routes along Kinsman Road and Detroit, Lorraine, St. Clair and Superior Avenues. So, um, they, they also plan to add 30 minute service to Madison and Clark avenues and Mayfield Ridge and Cedar roads. Uh, so they announced all of this yesterday and, and what they're doing is they're trying to sort of, uh, just boost frequency on several routes that are already, uh, very popular. And, um, they, they said that they're going to, to finalize these decisions over the next month. Um, and, but, but the big question is, what is it that they're, what are you eliminating as, uh, in order to do this? And they haven't really said much about that yet. Um, they, they do expect to reduce service or frequency on some routes. Um, that does include routes that are in close proximity to routes with more frequent service, but they have stressed that no municipality is going to lose service altogether. They always catch a lot of flack when they cut back. I mean, it's almost immediate every time. So uh, I can understand why they're being careful mm-hmm. in, in announcing that. They said they quite haven't quite finished the decisions of this will be the first cutback of service under the new RTA director. So it'd be, you know, pretty interesting to see what they do. It's good to see that they're, they're increasing service, trying to serve the most popular routes, but I think there's still a lot of fear by people getting on the bus because of the coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, public transportation is always dicey because it's not something that turns a profit. And, and there are people who think that like that is the, the role of a government agency is to either break even or make a profit. And, public transit all across the country and and Cleveland is no exception has just lost money forever and and when state governments are looking for things to defund they generally look at at transportation and education and and things like that but these things are kind of vital to a, a lot of communities that where people don't have cars or you know for people who are increasingly being forced to live further and further outside of the city because it's becoming so expensive to live in the city. People are now being forced to sort of get on buses and commute more. So, you know, the virus kind of throws a wrench into everything because everything is kind of disrupted. RTA has had its own struggles with, you know, with ridership and with, you know, with drivers getting sick. And, and so, you know, they're, they're in a tough they're, spot, you know, so they're trying to cope. I mean, they're, it's, it's, you know, so hopefully this will help them sort of, uh, you yeah. know, make ends meet and, and get us through this bad, bad period of uh, Cleveland history. It's this week in the CLE. 
is the Ritz-Carlton Cleveland turning into a no-tell motel? Mike Norman, this is probably one of the finest hotels in Cleveland. And what is the deal? They're going to have day rates? Is this for people that want to have secret trysts? What's going on? Yeah, there were a lot of jokes yesterday about getting on the Ritz. Um, (laughs) So... All right. They have 209 rooms. And during the coronavirus, uh, we've done a lot of reporting about across the country, really, about how uh, uh, occupancy rates are are down. And this seems like some marketers uh, a brainstorming session. So so they're offering eight hour rates. You can't do it by the hour. You can't rent it by the hour. You have to rent it by the eight hour period. And they're offering two packages, one aimed at people working remotely and then another aimed at family with families with kids going to school online. So you can get the Your Space package, which includes a room for eight hours, $20 dining credit, valet parking and high speed Internet for um, $200. Or you can get the luxury learning package, which uh, pretty much includes just that plus cookies and milk for the and a Cleveland Fun Facts worksheet for $200 an hour. So. Uh, Let me ask you, <laughs> you know, given given the nightmare parents have had trying to work from home while their kids are there, are they going to keep these people on separate floors? Because wouldn't this <laughs> just create that problem just in the hotel hallways? Well, I would think, you know, uh, people might just dump their kids at the hotel and come back eight hours later. You know what I'm saying? How old they are. Um, <laughs> they find Sharpies all over the wall and crayons yeah. on their furniture. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy. The hotels have been hit hard by the coronavirus, trying to lure work-at-home people down there for a different setting. If you're so sick of your working setting, I guess you could do that. Um, it kind of defeats the whole whole anti-commuting work from home. be interesting to see if it works out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are Goodwill and the Salvation Army getting overrun by notations of stuff? Jane Cahoon, this is a fascinating uh, ramification of the coronavirus. People are clearing out. What's going on? Yeah, it's pretty simple. As you said, you know, when people got stuck at home, they decluttered. And uh, I wish I had time to do that. But <laughs> um, the, the result, as Julie Washington so aptly put it in her story, is a tsunami of used clothing and sofas, you know, furniture and china sets headed to local thrift stores. Um, Goodwill and the Salvation Army and, and other organizations that get these donations say they've seen a big increase in the donations. Now, a lot of them were shut down during the stay at home order, but they still had trucks picking up stuff. And I think, you know, now they're back in business. But for instance, the Salvation Army told Julie that uh, donations rose about 30%. And uh, the Cleveland Furniture Bank also said, you know, their typical donation was maybe like five to six pieces a day. And now, they're getting like 35 to 40 pieces. So, wow. Um, yeah, wow. I think that's a day, unless that's a week. I think that's a day. But anyway, Julie has like a handy list with her story of places where you can, you can donate stuff. So. God, I wish I wish I had been clearing out stuff too. I mean, you're right. It's, like, it's a great <laughs> idea. Who has, who has time to do that? We're all working. This it's is this week in this the CLE. What's the strategy behind the Great Lakes Brewing Company, the largest craft brewery in Ohio, opening a big canning facility off Interstate 71? Is it a hedge against the coronavirus? Mike Norman, Mark Bona wrote a detail-laden story that had everything you could want to know about what's happening out there. What's the strategy? Well, 
previous generations would have associated beer in cans with blats or bud or pedestrian lagers, but the craft brew industry has begun to change. And even before the coronavirus, breweries out of Cincinnati and in other places in the country have had success with uh, beer in cans. Now, Great Lakes which is one of the oldest great uh, craft breweries in the country, has been a bottle um, brewery for almost ever. But even a few years ago, they started uh, canning. They struck a deal with a, a brewery uh, called Harpoon Brewery out of New England to can their turntable pills and their light, light keeper Blondale and a few others. So it's really not as much to do with the coronavirus as trends in the craft brew industry. The trend is toward cans. They're easier to ship. People don't have a problem with them anymore, associating them with lagers. And so that's the way that. Why is that? I mean, you're right. Because for years, cans were, you turned your nose up at them. Why has that changed? I think just so many good beers have come out in cans that people are um, like Rheingeist in Cincinnati, which is uh, one of the top craft beers in Ohio, has always been a canned a canned beer. Um, so you've got people, gener- a whole generation of people now have grown up drinking really good canned beer. Now, the kind of beers like Dortmunder Gold, um, Edmund Fitzgerald, um, they, they've been produced in bottle for years, but they don't really do as well in cans. And that's going to be kind of a challenge for Great Lakes because those are their most popular beers. But Great Lakes has been testing IPAs and additional other things to try to get to try to grab a piece of that market. They feel like their can business will overtake their bottle business by 2022. I, look, I get the, the much cheaper shipping costs, the, the, the can of aluminum versus a bottle of glass. There's a huge weight difference. But but the reason people in my generation went for bottles was because the cans gave it a different taste, that that the glass w- had a purity of flavor. And so I, that's what I'm surprised at, is that, that people don't believe that anymore. They don't believe that drinking it out of an aluminum can alters the flavor. Apparently not on, on a mass scale, because we're talking about a craft brew industry now that's massive. And so the audience isn't as much connoisseurs anymore as the general public. So maybe that that kind of um, connoisseur type approach to I'm going to drink it out of a bottle isn't quite as prevalent these days. That's it's a fascinating trend and we wish them well. It's this week in the CLE. That's going to do it, guys. We're not going to get to our final question about Troy Smith's list of the 100 best songs in the 1980s, which is great fun. Maybe we'll bring that back another day. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week with one more edition. 